1 Samuel chapter 21. You remember last week we looked at chapter 20, and it was uh, when David was really had this really uh, emotional saying of goodbyes to his best friend and probably one of his best allies on the planet at that time, other than God himself, was Jonathan. David and Jonathan had to part ways, and you recall that they had devised a, a, a system of uh, for David, because he was hunted by Jonathan's father, King Saul, there was really no way for David to be in Saul's presence any longer. Saul had become unhinged and was just completely bent on destroying David, obviously being very jealous of him, um, not only because of his military prowess, but also because of his, his uh, uh, musical ability, no doubt. And here David is on the run, and so Saul, or excuse me, Jonathan and David make this, this pact with one another, this vow to each other, that when David became king, that they would honor one another and that they wouldn't hurt each other's families. And I really think that's a remarkable thing for these two brothers to do. They, they were brothers in the sense of they had the same spirit Jonathan was a man of faith, and so was David. And Jonathan knew that David would ultimately be king. And he knew that his father, Saul, would not be much longer. It would actually be several years that Saul would still remain in power. But God had already called Samuel the prophet to go and anoint David as the next king. And so David would spend a good many years running for his life. And Saul, or excuse me, Jonathan was really his only ally. And Jonathan wasn't concerned about him taking the throne, which is the normal course of of kingship. When a father, the king dies, his son takes his place. But Jonathan, knowing very well that he was not the rightful king of Israel, that David was. And so they had this wonderful relationship, a relationship that really surpassed the love of women, the Bible says, which is pretty significant. You know, and it is possible to have somebody that close to you, you know, men and men and women and women, for it not to get weird but still love each other in, in, a, really, in really a, a real respect. And you understand what I'm saying. It is rare, but it's, it's very possible. And whenever you have something like that, don't dismiss it. You know, when you find a, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, someone you can confide your very heart with and know that it's secure, to know that it's secure, You can tell them anything, your deepest, darkest secret, and they would never tell a soul. That is so rare today. And that's what makes what happens so special. And so David, uh, upon this arrangement that they made in the field, uh, these signals that uh, Jonathan would give to David to signal whether he should be on the run and get away because his father certainly had it out for him, or whether he should come back into into the palace and continue to serve alongside the king, that signal had been accomplished. David knew then that he would, should be on the run because Saul had it in for him to kill him. And so we get to chapter 21, and let's just read it straight through. It says, now David, after this, he comes to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David, and he said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you, and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore, what, you, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women... Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? 
For I have brought neither sword nor spear or weapon, my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the king, or the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will, take that. Take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. And then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretending pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let saliva fall down on his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman, madman, that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this, fa- shall this fellow come into my house? And so here we find David certainly not in his finest hour. In fact, I would be willing to say this is probably Davis, David's darkest days that he would experience before he would come into his kingdom many, uh, a handful of years before Let's go back to verse 1. It says that David came to Nob, and Nob is this city. Uh, the, name of the name of the city, Nob, literally means a knoll or hill, and many believe it's one mile and a half to the northeast of Jerusalem. So if you're looking at a map of Jerusalem, just northeast of Jerusalem would be the town of Nob, or this little village. And there is some speculation on the exact location, but many believe it's right there around the Mount of Olives in that area, and that's exactly where it is. In fact, when you drive up, if you go to Israel, or maybe you've been to Israel with us, when we drive in the bus from Jericho, we make that long descent going up the hill up to Jerusalem, Nob would probably be on the left hand or the right hand of that road. Um, and that's really where they think this is located. And evidently during this time, the tabernacle was set up there in this town You recall that Shiloh, um, several chapters prior in 1 Samuel, when we looked at the lives of um, Hophni and Phinehas and and their father, who was high priest at the time, and remember they brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle with the Philistines, and the Philistines destroyed Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle had been set up. It was actually set up there during the days of Joshua, And so there it was, but then they did the foolish thing of bringing the ark into battle with the Philistines. Not only did they, the Philistines take the ark from the children of Israel, but then they destroyed the town of Shiloh, and so they they moved the, the, the tabernacle and all of its articles, they moved it to Nob, this place very near to Jerusalem. And notice in verse 1 it says, And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David. And he said to him, Why are you alone? No one is with you. And there's good reason for him to feel afraid because David, if you recall, was a national hero. He was a national hero. And as, da- as one of Saul's right-hand men, the, one of the commanders of his army, the, the most victorious man of, of all the guys who would be um, taking the armies out, normally when he would travel, he would have a, a group of men with him, a small army with him wherever he went. And certainly he would be armed himself. So now he comes to Ahimelech, the priest, in Nob, in the city, and the, the, the high priest has no idea of the relationship or the lack thereof between Saul and David. He's not aware of anything. And so he, he sees David with no weapons. He, he probably looks somewhat disheveled, probably looks hungry, thirsty, tired, fearful. Have you ever seen somebody who's just like frazzled, you know, like that cat that's got a little too much electricity? You know, the, 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 you know it's just frazzled. And that was David, and he stands before Ahimelech, and Ahimelech's going, something doesn't quite feel right. And he was right to feel that way. Because where, where are all your men, David? You should at least have you know, a handful of guys around you, well-armed. And why aren't you armed? And why are you here? And 
And so David said to him, verse 2, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Was David telling the truth? He was not telling the truth. And so here, again, David, not one of his finest moments in his life. And, and we saw this in the previous chapter, right? Because Jonathan and he came up, they concocted this, they hatched this plan, and they lied to Saul. Tell your dad that I went to Bethlehem you know, for the feast of the new moon, and that's why I'm not at the seat. But really what it was is it was a ruse to find out the real intentions of Saul. And Jonathan found out very clearly and almost lost his life, realizing that Saul wanted to kill David. And he even attempted to kill Jonathan, his own son, because he knew that there was this relationship between the two of them. And so, but David was lying. So he lied then, and he's lying now. He was alone. There was, uh, biblically, we don't know that there's anybody with him at this time. Later on in this chapter, we'll find that 400 men amassed to him, those who were distressed and in debt, and they gathered to him at the Adullam's cave. But at this moment, he was a lone ranger, I believe, because there's nothing mentioning anything to the otherwise. But not only those things, not only in the previous chapter, not only right here is he lying, we're going to see later on in the chapter that He's going to be lying to Achish, the king of the Philistines, of the king of Gath. And I think we could all agree that lying is a sin. Is it not? Right? What does it tell us in Exodus 20, verse 16? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. A false witness, that means lying to your neighbor. Lying to anyone, lying is a sin. And so David, again, this great man of faith who we saw in chapter 17 and 18, defeating Goliath, rising from obscurity, this young man, and now he's a national hero, and everybody loves him, so, so very accomplished in his military exploits with Saul's armies. And now he is seemingly a very different man, a very different man. Later on, when uh, I believe David wrote Psalm 119, it doesn't say so on the psalm, but in Psalm 119, verse 29, it says this, Remove from, my, from me the way of lying. And I can't imagine anyone else who could say that like David, because he realized when he wrote that psalm, looking back on this moment of his life, realizing where he had fallen, the pit that he had dug for himself, You see, lies, liars, whisperers, backbiters, they ruin fellowships. That's why lying is a sin, because God knows it ruins people. It ruins people. It ruins fellowships. Even in this fellowship, in every church that you go to, folks, we are all the same. Even as Christians, we we all have weaknesses. We all have issues. Remember, this is a hospital. None of us here are perfect. We come here to be encouraged, and, and hopefully we're growing. But in that growing process, sometimes there can be sparks. Sometimes there can be differences of opinion. And there can be some uh, iron sharpening iron. And is that ever pleasant? It's not. But only here can we get it right. And we don't have to run when we get upset. Enough of that has happened. Wouldn't you agree? Maybe many of you have been in churches. Isn't it better to resolve a matter and grow in something rather than just getting mad and then leaving. But that's what lying does. That's what backbiting does. That's what gossip does. It tears people apart. In Proverbs 16, verse 28, it says, A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. All it takes is a whisperer to tear apart a friendship that's been going well for years In Proverbs 17, verse 9, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. So how how, how careful do we have to be? You know, James said the the tongue is such a small member, and yet it's it's the, the smallest member of our body, but boy, has it got such poison. With a word, you can cut somebody off. 
with a word, you can say one thing and they'll never speak to you again. With one word, a husband can speak to a wife and so wound her that it will take years for her to recover. How important are words? How important is backbiting and gossip? It's very important. In Revelation 21, verse 8, speaking of the eternal, our eternal resting place in the new Jerusalem, it says this, it says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, this is speaking, obviously, of not some person who just had a weak moment. This, is, this marks the life of a person who is continually doing these things without the Spirit of God in them. Thank God, as Christians, when we sin, we can go to the Lord, can't we? And we can confess it. Isn't that what 1 John 1 is all about? If we confess our sins, he is what? He's faithful and for, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we do. But for the unbeliever, they continue to sin, and they continue to sin, and there's no repentance. And there comes a point in the life of a person when they have continued in those things that we just read, and there is no repentance, there's no acknowledging Christ, no acknowledging their sin, that they will spend an eternity separated from God. And it will be their fault. It's not God's fault. But that's what happens. All liars. But David was a believer, I think the only time that it's permissible to lie is to protect the life, again, of an innocent from an evil person or from a system. You protect the life. But what happened to David? At the very least, he was overcome by fear. Does anybody know fear here this evening? He was over, have you ever been overcome by fear? Have you been overcome by so much fear that you just, your knees start to cave, your knees start to buckle because, and your will is just wrought, and you're just like at the end of yourself? Have you felt that way? I felt that way this year. Have you? I think all of us have in many different ways. But at the very least, he was overcome by fear because he knew that he had very few allies, Jonathan being one of them and Samuel being the other one and Almighty God, and that's enough, I would say. But still, at our weakest moments, we sometimes forget about God. We sometimes forget about the two allies that we have, and the whole world seems to be against you. And the devil loves to make you feel that way. He loves to get you cornered. He likes to get you alone. That's what a wolf does with a shepherd, or with a, a flock of sheep. He, he never goes after the whole bunch when they're together, even though they are defenseless. Have you ever seen a sheep? Have you ever seen a sheep with big t- things and stuff like that and claws like razors? It doesn't happen. It do, you, uh, they can't even defend themselves. What are they going to do, gnaw you to death? Have you seen their teeth? Not going to happen. But fear can be a powerful motivator for all kinds of things. And many of us, even in this last year, again, with the coronavirus and all the things that have been going on politically and, um, you know, just there's been so much, so much, so many people still in great fear. You don't have to live in fear like David. In 2 Timothy 1, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind of power and of love and of a sound mind. And you know, anything that you do that upsets that, you might want to think about getting rid of it. Can I make a few suggestions? Cable television, news, social media, YouTube. Seriously, consider eradicating it from your life. You'll call me up in a week after you've done so, and you go, it's the best thing I've ever done. I've completely withdrew myself, for the most part, from all this stuff. And I've got to be honest with you, it's been the, one of the best things I've ever done. And I want to continue on it because, folks, there's no good news out there. And there's so much deceit and dishonesty. Wouldn't you rather spend that time with the Word? Wouldn't you rather spend that time in fellowship or in prayer? Wouldn't you rather spend that time doing anything, taking a walk along the canal path, doing something, anything, but watching that stuff? It's just going to tie you in a knot. It will tie you a knot. Many of you are tied in knots right now. I met a, there was a woman a couple Sundays ago, um, 
And I was talking to her, and uh, she sounded like exactly how I was back in January. And I said to her, I said, you know, just get rid of all of it. Just cut it out of your life, and you, you will feel better and, and get more focused on the word. And so we have been living in fear, but we don't have to live in fear. Like David, we don't have to live in fear. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, speaking of Jesus, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loves us, loved us, and he continues to love us. Do you know you're loved by God in spite of everything that you've done? Maybe even before this very day, you've really blown it. You've really made a huge mistake. You've done something. Do you think God is just going to cast you away? Do you think he was going to do that to David after his mistakes? I mean, think of this. I mean, he's lapsing in faith big time as we read this chapter. And then to know that after he becomes king, the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, and can I tell you with all confidence and heaven on my side, David is in glory. He's in heaven. He broke. He asked God to forgive him, and he never went back. That's the difference. That's the difference, folks. If you sin, you confess it, and if you sin again, you confess it, and pretty soon you're going to hate it like God hates it. You keep confessing, you keep confessing, ask God to forgive you, and he will forgive you. But David, when he did these things, he said, I'm done. I am done. And he was a broken man, and he wrote some of the most beautiful psalms that have ever been written for us to benefit from. But he loves. God loves. He's not angry with us. He took out the punishment for your sin and my sin on Jesus. The innocent paid the price for the guilty. (laughs) He was the only innocent one in the world. He's God Almighty, perfect and holy in every way. And I deserve that judgment. He took it for me and you. And I love them for it. We love him because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, what did he do? Christ died for us. Is there anybody on the planet that will do that? Will your best friend die for you when you've done something wrong and take the punishment? Eternal punishment. (laughs) Jesus took that. It's evident also that his faith in God's ability to sustain him was shaken as well. It wasn't just the fear, it was a, a lapse in faith. Aren't you glad that God is so gracious and he doesn't throw us away like, like some kind of used napkin? People will do that to you. The world will do that to you. When you upset somebody in a Fortune 500 company and you do it bad enough, they'll just throw you out. They'll take your, your key card from you and you won't even be able to go back to your desk. You'll have a couple guys with suits, you know, marching you out, one on each arm. Does God treat you like that? No, he does not. He didn't do it to David. God didn't give up on David because of these weaknesses, and he won't give up on you either. It's been said that it took one day for God to get the children of Israel out of Egypt, but it took another 40 years in the desert to get Egypt out of them. (laughs) God is very patient with us. He's been, and as we will see, he's very patient with David. Never forget that. And it's easy for us to look at this event and be critical to be armchair quarterbacks. You know what that is. That's somebody who sits you know, on the sidelines and, and says, well, I, he should have done this, he should have done that, I would have done this, or I would have done that. And the truth of the matter is, none of us know how we would respond in the same situation that David was in. We can talk a big game, but until you are in the game, until you are faced with exactly what David was faced, faced with, I wonder how many, including myself, if I wouldn't have done the same thing. I would have had a lot of fun at Achish's place. Because I'd be really silly. I probably would have, who knows what I would have done. I wonder how the Lord might have secured David and protected him if he had never spoken, or if he had spoken the truth from the very beginning. I wonder how things might have been different. It wouldn't have been as comfortable. But you know, honoring God is always the best thing. Honor him, trust him. 
What is your price for rebellion against God? How much pressure is necessary before you finally cave in? For some, it's not much. I pray that God would give us all a bulletproof threshold, that we'd have a bulletproof will, that we'd say, Lord, I will not. And you know, there are people in history who have gone to the stake and they've, lit, they've had the, the torches right below the, the, the beam they were tied to and all the fire, all the, the soaked oil all around with all the wood. Polycarp was one of them. Denounce Christ. I will not denounce the one who saved my soul. They would take the, fl- the torches and he'd be a human candle. He did not denounce his Lord. I love that. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus said this. He said, For what will, pro- what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will he, a man give in exchange for his soul? What is your price? What is your price? In verse 3, he says, Now therefore, what have you have on hand? David, standing before Ahimelech there in the tabernacle in Nob, do you have anything to eat? Five loaves. Do you have anything? What can be found? In the tabernacle, you remember that as you walk into the, the holy place, as soon as you walk into the holy place, there are just four pieces of furniture. On the left-hand side, you're going to see the lampstand, the menorah. Right in front of you is going to be the altar of incense, and then behind that altar of incense is going to be a large veil. And then on the right side, you're going to see the table of showbread. This is where David, at Nob, where he got the bread to sustain him. And then behind that veil certainly is the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the tables. And the priest answered, David said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is only holy bread. They call it show bread. It's bread that they would put on, the, on, the, on this table on the right-hand side as you would walk in. They would put 12 of them, two rows of six, to represent certainly the 12 tribes of Israel. They'd be sprinkled with frankincense. In Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9, it tells us the, the ingredients of these things. But this is the bread that David ate. This was holy bread. Ahimelech allowed him to eat the bread because they were in a strait, or David was in a strait. But it was supposed to only be eaten by who? The priests, right? Jesus also made provision, and I love this this illustration here because normally people would think that God is this stringent, sort of follow the book by the law, and there's just rigid and just nasty and cold and indifferent and just angry. People have this understanding of who God is, and it's totally wrong. And this is proof of it right here. In fact, when Jesus ministered, it says that it happened. This is uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Now it happened that he went through, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, (laughs) And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do you do that which is unlawful on the Sabbath? You weren't supposed to do any work at all, no working, even though there was provision in the law for gleaning. You know what gleaning is? That's going into a field after the, after the farmer's already gone through and gotten the harvest. They would leave a couple rows around the perimeter of the field so that poor people or people passing through could just reach up and grab you know, a, a piece of weed or, or fruit of some kind. And that's what they were doing. And the Pharisees, the legalists, the ones that had starched collars, the ones who had the lemons that they were sucking on that looked like this. Everything by the letter, man. Everything by the letter. Oh, don't you cross that line. Oh, God's going to strike you dead. Don't you even think about it. Walk a straight line. Suck in that gut. Get a haircut. Clean the brass on that buckle. What's the matter with you? Get that smile off your face. <laughs> Have you ever met people like that? Legalists. So the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do you do that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you not read what David did? And he's referring to this very moment in this chapter in Samuel 21. Jesus says, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him, 
how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests. And he also gave some of those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You see how God is? He knows what's best for man. He knows that they need a rest. It wasn't some kind of, you know, if you don't do this, boy, you're in real deep trouble. Yeah, they were serious about it. But Jesus is modifying it here and saying, you know what, if you knew the heart of God, you wouldn't have such a problem with this, guys. Isn't it better on the Sabbath if your donkey falls into a ditch? How many men are going to get down and help you get that donkey or that, that cattle out of a ditch on the Sabbath? Wouldn't you do it? If your daughter falls into a well, are you just going to leave her there for the next day? I'll see you after Sabbath, honey. No, you're going to work like you've never worked to get her out of the pit. Life. God values life more than these little things. You know, it's like, you know, for any man in leadership, it would be a really bad idea to be driving in a car with another woman, especially if you're a married man, and there's a woman driving with you that's either single or married herself. Not a good thing, because people look, and it creates the illusion of something evil, doesn't it? And that's fine and well, but what would happen if you're driving in a car, guys? You're in the middle of Colorado. You're 30 miles away from any town. It's the middle of winter. There's a blizzard. It's zero degrees outside, and you see one car on the road ahead of you, and for some reason, you see the lights go off, and the, and the person goes down into the embankment and hits a tree. They climb out of the car, and you find out that it's a woman, and you're a pastor of a church, or you're a man in ministry. And you see the poor woman, you know, 30 miles away in zero-degree temperatures. The snow is still falling. What are you going to do? <laughs> Flee the appearance of evil and let her freeze to death? I think you'd pick her up. Put her in the car. Take her to the nearest town. Right? There's some things that are really important. But grace and mercy, the grace and mercy of God will and always has frustrated those stuck in legalism. Legalism. The scribes and the Pharisees, they knew the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't know the heart of God. There's a difference, you know. You can know everything, but you, cannot, you can miss the heart of God by knowing everything to the letter and totally missing everything else. So important to know the heart of God in addition to the word of God. They were more interested in the outward appearances rather than the inward. Jesus even said to them, he says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory for men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But, but a person who's legalistic wants to make sure that everybody sees their good deed that they're doing. And Jesus says they've received their reward. They're not going to get it from me. I would encourage you to read Matthew 23, and I'm just going to read two, two or three verses. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. These guys were the legalists. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean, cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Jesus was never easy on the religious leaders. They were the ones that were supposed to lead and to lead people into righteousness. And instead, they were making money off people and not doing the things that they ought to have done. Let us remember grace and mercy. And I think of Ahimelech. You know, he's looking at that bread and he's thinking to himself, you know what? There's a genuine need here. And we just replaced the, the showbread with new stuff, and we got the old stuff here. David, you take it. David, you take it. 
And the Lord commended that action. In Luke chapter 2, we just read it. So back in verse 5, it says, Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young man are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there, and this is where the key turns to minor. Everything was bright and cheerful, the sun was out, and now all of a sudden there's clouds over the sun. <laughs> the, the sound turns to a minor key, and you can hear that dum, dum, da, dum, 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 dum. You can hear the Star Wars you know, theme going, doeg. And he's probably got a patch on his eye, probably a peg leg. You know, he's walking around like a pirate. This guy is there, and notice it says detained before the Lord. And his name actually means anxious or fearing. Can you imagine being a, 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 a mother? What are you going to name your newborn son? Fear. Fear and anxiousness. Doeg. I love it. Doeg was an Edomite. He was from the line of Esau. And remember, the line of Esau and the line of Jacob never really were simpatico. And in fact, in chapter 14 of this very book, Saul had slaughtered the Edomites. And this gentleman was more than likely a prisoner or maybe even a traitor, but Saul got a hold of him and made him one of his chief herdsmen. So there was this intense animosity between him and the descendants of Jacob and he certainly didn't like the priest from you know, the tribe of Levi. He hated them. We don't know exactly why he was detained. It could have been because he was unclean or maybe he made a vow and he had to be there for a certain amount of time. But either way, he was there. We don't know. And the devil seems to always have his man in place when God is about to do something. The devil loves to have someone in place when the child of God is struggling he always seems to have his man in place. Did you see what he did? The accuser of the brethren. Isn't that what Satan accused Job? Have you seen this man? The Lord goes, yeah, he's a righteous man. And he goes, let me at him and he'll curse you to your face. Oh, really? So you know Job better than I do. I'll make you a deal. You go ahead and you touch whatever you want. You just can't take his life. And the devil says, great, because he doesn't care. He just wants to destroy. Even though he can't kill him, he's glad to take away anything. But see, the devil always has his man in place to accuse the righteous. Have you been accused by someone when you're trying to do the right thing? Or maybe you've done a good deed. Maybe you're doing a good thing. And maybe you slipped up. Maybe you didn't follow the rules. Maybe you did one little mistake that nobody really cares about, but, oh, there's one person in the room who's like, mm, can't have that. So then you got the religious people, the legalists, against you, and then you got the people looking at you who aren't even a, a child of God. Oh, you messed up. <laughs> you know, we're, we're kind of like, as, as a group, the church, we are like the little minnow streaming up, swimming upstream, and we're fighting the current. We're just making every fin push a little, you know. And we're just we're cruising up, trying just to get a headway. And, be, and coming at us are, is a school of 18-foot great white sharks that are just hungry. Female great white sharks, bereaved of their children, coming at you. Not a good scene. That's what we are. But God. But God. So David said to Ahimelech, Is there uh, not here a hand on hand a spear or a sword? For I have not brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And again, this ought to have seemed strange to Ahimelech. So the priest said to him, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it, for there is no other except that one. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. And so David, no doubt, gave it to them to put behind as, as a memorial to God's faithfulness. At some point, he gave the sword, and now he's coming back on the run, realizing he's got nothing. And I wonder if there was something of the Lord in this, too. I mean, think about it. He's at his low point, his, the low ebbing of his faith, and then he sees that sword, 
And Ahimelech brings it out, and you can imagine, he brings it out to David, and David's looking at it. And I wonder what was going through David's mind. Was he thinking to himself, man, that was the day. Lord, that was the time in my life when I was just soaring like an eagle with you, and now look at me. I wonder if that wasn't just like a little... The Lord just saying, David, remember, I was with you then, I can be with you now. Why are you running? Why are you fearful? You can trust me, David. As I was with you in that valley with Goliath, I'm with you in your valley right now. David, why are you lying? Why are you doing all these things? Just come to me, David. Can you imagine the sword just brings back this flood of memories of his faith? I wonder. It may have been a stimulus to David's faith, perhaps. So verse 10, it says, Then David arose, and he fled that day from before Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now Gath is roughly 25 miles southwest of Nob. What a great name. wonder what they do in Nob. We make doorknobs. Where do you live? Nob. Well, you got a funny nose. It looks like a knob. You know? But here he is. He flees from Nob. He goes uh, 25 miles southwest to this, the city of Gath. Now, what do you think about that? Where did Goliath come from? What was, where was Goliath's hometown? Was it not Gath? And now he's got Goliath's sword, the champion of the Philistines. He's got his sword. He's marching into town. Can you see that? You know, they, they got the gate open, and here you see this, this handsome stranger coming down. He's coming in with his sword. And you can imagine, I wonder if David thought to them, I bet, they, I bet maybe they'll fear me. Maybe they'll still fear me. But Gath was the birthplace of Goliath. It was also one of the five major cities of the Philistines. The other four were Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, and Ashdod. But does it make sense that he would go into this place of the enemy? You know what that's like? That's like an antelope going into a den of lions. It doesn't make sense. But you know, for some reason, David's thinking to himself... Saul's got control of the whole army. Even though they love me, they, they, who knows what they think about me now? He has control over them. So I guess my only option is to flee to the enemy. Maybe they'll be more merciful. Maybe they can use me to fight battles against my own people. And that's exactly what happened. We're going to see that. But it's insane. He's, it's insane. He, he, he does some pretty strange things. And, you know... Have you done strange things when you were in fear or when you were feeling pressed beyond measure? Have you done anything that was desperate? Raise your hand if you have. I'll be the first to do it. Have you, been, have you done something really strange when you were fearful or pressed beyond measure? We've all done strange things. And you know what? Usually it's in times like that that we really make our big mistakes. I think of the Apostle Peter after all that the Lord had shown him after all the, that the Lord had done in his life, and then at the end of Jesus' life, Peter, under great pressure and fear, he denies the Lord three times. What do you do when you're in great pressure, when you're in great fear? Let me suggest to you, stop. Stop and pray. And don't do anything hastily. When you feel like you've got to do something right now, you better be careful. When other people are telling you, you've got to do it now or you're going to miss this opportunity, it'll never come back again. Have you heard that before? Don't listen. If it's God's will, he's going to bring it back. It's always better to pause. I mean, if, you're, if your child is in the middle of the road and you say, you better go save your child. No, I don't think so. No, you go and you get the child from getting, you know, not talking about that. But when you're forced to make a snap decision, and boy, you better do it now. You better do it quick. Here's what I recommend. Do it now. Do it now. You better back off and say, I'm not doing anything until I pray. <laughs> Some things you can do. I mean, you understand what I'm saying, but take the time. Don't do anything hastily. Notice in verse 11, And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? So David took these words to heart, and he was very afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. So now, in pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. 
For this to happen to, from one man to another to uh, disgrace his beard in any way or for a man to do it himself, do you realize in that culture that was like a very huge no-no? It was considered a great insult for David to let anything, let his beard be unkempt like that and have you know, saliva dripping down as he was feigning to be mad, hoping now that they'll just let him go. Because in that culture, anyone who was insane like that, many believed that he was either uh, influenced by a demon spirit, and they, what they would do is they would just leave you alone because they didn't want to upset you. They didn't want the repercussions of what you might do in your unstable mental case. So they would just kind of hot potato kind of thing, get him out of town, you know. So David hopes that that'll happen. Indeed, that did work. It did work. So then Achish said to his servants, verse 14, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought to me? Have I need of a mad have, have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? <laughs> Pretty interesting. Some Jewish writers believe that Achish's wife and his daughter were insane. It's not written in the Bible, but um, some Jewish writers have, have said that this man had a wife and a daughter who was insane, so he's probably going, I know exactly how this works out, and you know what? I've got enough on my plate. Thank you very much. See you, David. See you in St. Louis. We'll even give you some victuals for your way, for your journey. Maybe we'll even give you something to go away on. Give him a donkey. Yeah, just, just get him out, and uh, see you later. Love you. But see, the thing is, is, David lost his sight, his eyesight on Jesus. He lost his focus on Jesus. Have you ever lost your focus with Jesus? I have. It's painful. It's painful. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. We'll be done here shortly. Matthew chapter 14. The scene of this is, is very important. Jesus was on the, if you're looking at a map of the Sea of Galilee, which is north in the northern part of Israel, if you look at it and you look on the western, or the, excuse me, the eastern shore of the Galilee, this is where Jesus fed the 5,000. This is where he fed the 5,000. Gennesaret, which is a place where we go when we go to Israel, we go to Nof Gennesar, and we're at our hotels right there on the beach. And so, therefore, Jesus went from the opposite side of the lake on the east side, and he comes west. And, and, and let me read to you. It says, When Jesus uh, heard it, he departed from there by boat to a desert place. Um, but when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion on them for, and healed their sick. And when it was evening, notice his, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy food. And you remember what happened. You know, they had just a, a, a they only had a, a five loaves and, and two fish, and Jesus said, Set them down into companies. And then he, then he blessed, and he broke the bread. And he gave to the disciples, and so they all ate and were filled. And then they took up of the fragments of that 12 baskets full, big baskets of the fragments that remained. And those who had eaten were about 5,000 besides women and children. But notice what happens immediately following. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So they're on the east side, go west. So they get in the boat, and it's about a seven-mile hike across that lake. And so the disciples... It says, now when evening came, Jesus was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea. And there's mountains all around, so Jesus can see. Just picture it in your mind. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now on the fourth watch, this is somewhere between three and six in the morning. They've been working hard to get to the other side. When the disciples, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered, and I love this. You know, for all the boneheaded things that Peter had done, I can relate to Peter really well because I do a lot of boneheaded things. He's the only one who walked on water other than Jesus. Do you know that? He's the only one. Notice. 
He said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And so he said, come. Didn't even skip a beat. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw, here's the thing, when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And I love this. And what's the point of this whole thing? Focus. David has lost his focus in God. He's got his eyes off of Jesus. He's got it on all the surroundings. And what did Peter do? Jesus says, come out, Peter. And Peter began to walk on the water. And can you imagine? Nobody in history. I mean, when, even during the Exodus, the water parted and they went through on dry ground. But now you've got somebody, only him, other than Christ, walking on the water. Can you imagine? Other guys kind of berating him later. Yeah, you denied the Lord three times. What an idiot. And he's like, yeah, but I'm the only one who got out of the boat. What about you guys, you lightweights? I mean, they probably had fun like that, i got to imagine. He was the only one to get out. He was doing just fine as he was looking at the Lord. And what's the point in all this? Keep your eyes on the Lord. Especially right now, everything is falling apart. There are so many things going on, folks. If you get your eyes on all these things that are going on, there are circumstances surrounding you, things that are happening. And trust me, if you're a, a news junkie, you're going to have no peace, and you won't have any sleep, and you're going to have to take a few more pills to go to bed. Is that really the way the Lord would have you live? Would he have you to be peaced out, knowing that he's got everything under control? Wouldn't it be better just to pray about these things? Maybe not be so in tune with everything. I love people say, well, I've got I've to know everything that's going on so I know how to pray. Believe me, I think that the Lord would rather have you be more peaced out and be a better witness for your own life and your family and your church family than to be a basket case like I was. He would rather have you do that because there is not one thing I can do I'm going to lift my prayers to him, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to go to sleep. I lay me down to sleep. (laughs) The Lord gives his beloved sleep. Do you want to have peace? Then cut out some of the stuff you're listening to. Cut out some of the stuff you're watching. YouTube is a big problem. So many people getting side-railed now with YouTube, all these different preachers. And there's nothing wrong. There's, there's some that are really good, and they're doing the right thing. They're preaching the word. They're doing right. And then there's others that are leading people astray. People are getting whacked. So many weird things are happening. Be very careful, folks. Make sure you're a Berean. Look it up in here. If it's not here, dismiss it. Stop watching it. You're better off reading the Bible yourself. Seriously. Social media. Cable news, get rid of it. Even Fox, get rid of it. You will be much better. You will be much better. Get your eyes back on Jesus Christ and get your eyes off of the circumstances. That's the sermon. That's the message tonight. Get your eyes off of that stuff. And turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will do what? They will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what we need to do, folks. That's what I need to do. And I can tell you that I've been doing that. And my, everything is changing for me. It's been more, uh, there's been challenges. Uh, but I can tell you in my heart, I'm at, more, I'm at a greater peace. And... I want that for you too. The Lord wants that for you. Because that's when we do the best, when we are just submitted to him and waiting upon him, trusting in him, and loving on him, and loving other people, regardless of their political persuasion. Who cares? Love them. Be Christ to them. Can we do that? I love what David said in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not even death itself, but the shadow of it, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I love that. There's no fear. When you're in the center of God's place, he who abides in the secret place shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
Abide in Christ. Abide in him and cut out all the negative stuff in your life. Abide in him. Abide in him. And you will be so much better. Let's turn to Psalm 34, and we're going to read this psalm, and then we will finish our time this evening. Psalm 34. If you'll notice at the, I believe it's called a prologue, I think, that little amount of text right before the psalm, and it's very fitting for what we've just read, because David wrote this psalm based on what we've just read. As he is before Ahimelech, the madness before Abimelech, I'm sorry, who drove him away and departed, David wrote this psalm in response. As he became an older man and he was looking back at this time, you know, age has a funny thing of, it does funny things to you, you know. As you get older, you look back on things and events in your life and you kind of put them in perspective. You kind of size them up, which is always a very healthy thing to do because then you can realize, you can see how God worked in spite of you. Most of the time. So David's reflecting later on, and he writes the psalm about this incident, this, this circumstance that we just read, this chapter. I would encourage you to read the chapter again and then read Psalm 34 again, and it will add new meaning. But let's just read it. It's not very long. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. He says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. I would say so, David. Out of all those things that he went through, the madness that he went through, the lying, the, you know, the finagling that he did, the acting like a madman, <laughs> David looks back and he says, Lord, you delivered me from all of my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man, and I, I'm assuming he's speaking of himself here, David, he said, this poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And see, that's the same for us today, too. Are you searching the Lord out? Are you uh, crying out to him? The Lord always responds to desperation. If you are sincere and you're calling out to God, he's never going to leave you high and dry. He will always come to you. If you're, especially when you're sincere and your heart is broken, he will never leave you. Who do you run to? Notice, verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. I think he has something uh, to say about that, don't you? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What a great exhortation. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want or no lack to those who fear him. Fear in a reverence. And certainly we need to fear God in reverence, but we also ought to fear him because he's the only one who not only can put to death the body, but can also send a soul to hell, Right? Then he say, rather fear him. Don't fear what man can do to you, because all man can do is kill this body. Well, what happens after the body is dead? You've got, a, you've got a resurrection yet to come. You've got to stand before the white throne judgment, if you're not a believer. And there's no hope for you then. Then you're eternal damnation forever, ever, for eternity. David says, fear the Lord. You, his saints, there is no lack to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. And you can hear this man at this time. Who knows how old he was and he wrote this. He says, come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What a wonderful thing. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Who is that man? If there is, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Does David know what he's speaking of? Sure, because he was that man. He was that man. He owns this verse. He owns it. Maybe you do too. I can certainly own this this verse. Notice verse 14. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. 
Verse 15, turn off YouTube and all social media. Oh, that's not in there, is it? I'm sorry. Uh, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. I love this. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. But the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Was that David? You better believe it. He was in the darkest moments of his life, and the Lord heard him. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems or buys back the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. I love that, don't you? And so David wrote that psalm as he reflected on this chapter that we looked at tonight. I'd encourage you to read it again. Read the chapter, 21, and then read that psalm, and just think about it. Think about it. And, and be encouraged. Again, don't be fearful. Don't be fearful. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the exhortation of your word. Lord, we know that you're a good God and that you love us. And Father, protect us from, from legalism. Lord, protect us from fear. And Lord, help us to be men and women of God. Lord, not abusing grace, not abusing and taking advantage of, of anything that you have, God, but rather being humbled and loving you, Lord, as you loved us, Lord. Help us to love each other as you love us. And give us, give us your spirit, God, upon us daily, Lord, how we need it, especially in the world we live in now, Father. So many things going on that we can't control. And actually, Lord, that just seem madness to us. Just crazy things. We certainly live in unique times, God, and you are continuing your program Lord, give us your spirit, pour it out upon us, and help us to be faithful ambassadors of yours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Have a blessed night.